This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, boomers and fans, to another episode of Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated Enterprise show. I'm Norman Lau, and with me, as he is every week, is my esteemed co-host and content manager for the network, Will Wynn. Will, how you doing? I'm great. I'm really excited for today's show. Yeah, we're going to have a great show, and uh, usually we like to have like the pre-show banter, but it's, it's so dense, and we have so much stuff to cover, I think we're going to get right to it. So I'm going to introduce... Our special guest for the week, we have Jeff Harlan here. Everyone knows him as as Mr. Atos, or at least I like to call him Mr. Atos, but he is our Trek expert extraordinaire and the author of Trekopedia. So, Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, I'm glad to be here again. And glad to have you with us. So, in this episode, we'll be talking about a topic that it's not just near to our hearts and dear to our hearts. I think that anyone who watches Star Trek has a certain affectation and appreciation for starships. And in this episode, we're going to be specifically talking about the ships of Earth's first Starfleet and technically the ships of this Starfleet's line of ships, which there aren't really that many, I guess, in, um, in contrast to other series like Deep Space Nine and The Next Generation and all the giant ship and fleet movements that you see in those, in those specific series. So we wanted to get down into understanding what the first fleet looked like, because Enterprise is all about firsts, and what exactly was the fleet up to when we didn't see them off screen, because all we really paid attention to was the Enterprise and, at times, the Columbia. But we really didn't get to see all of Starfleet. So that's the topic for tonight, and it's going to be really, really awesome because there's so much to talk about, more than you may think. So starting this off, before we get into the actual ships, the ships other than Enterprise, I wanted to start off with thanking those specific artists and designers who really brought about just this amazing looking visual vocabulary of Starship silhouettes to Enterprise. And we're talking about Oscar-winning, award-winning Doug Drexler, who created the NX-01, amongst other ships for the show. We have John Eaves, who, 
for I know the Deep Space Nine fans know his work because he he's an amazing drafting artist and he did some incredible work on one of my favorite episodes for Deep Space Nine, Far Beyond the Stars, where you got to see some of the illustrated works that was held up by J.G. Hertzler's character. And then we have also the just the maestro of CG rendering. We have Robert Bonchun, who also did a lot of great work for Star Trek. And I'm sorry, John Eves also is credited for designing the Enterprise E that we saw in uh, Insurrection and Nemesis, uh, which is a gorgeous-looking ship. So thank you to these specific artists and masters for just the amounts of passion and detail and and sheer quality that they brought to all the design work on the show. Now, again, we talked about how Enterprise is a lot of these very first of experiences for anything that we talk about in Star Trek because this is the origin series. And one of the things that I don't think they really did a great job of in the series is talking about the first fleet because we are talking about Starfleet. So the first talking point that is on the order is how exactly big is Starfleet in the 22nd century or the mid 22nd century? So let's go through that. Will, Jeff, what did you think about how Enterprise illustrated Starfleet did you think that Starfleet should have been bigger, broader, with more depth? Or did you think that because of where we were in this timeline that, okay, I understand that Starfleet really just isn't this large organization that we're used to seeing? No, Starfleet is pretty small at this point. I mean, it's really believable that they only have a handful of ships right now because, like, in the first episode, Tripp's saying, you know, Starfleet hasn't been around for very long and we know from uh, a lot of different sources that the United Earth government only formed, you know, sometime within 20 or 30 so years before the first episode of Enterprise. So that's not a whole lot of time for them to start building up ships to put into this fleet. So the fleet can't be that big to begin with. And they're also coming out of uh, the end of uh, um, World War Three and rebuilding from that. And that was less than a century before um, it took them probably 50 years or so just to get back on their feet. So it, it's it's not a, a stretch of the imagination to, to think that there's not that many ships in the fleet at this point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think this was an opportunity for them to potentially, this has always been my issue, is they really dropped the boomer arc, right? So the boomer arc provided the perfect other piece of explaining where Starfleet fits into the human space uh, project or the human space, uh, the human ability to go into space, right? So we understand in later episodes, only a handful of episodes, that there are, are there are civilian freighters out there, that there is a civilian service out there in which space is not the sole province of Starfleet, and it would make sense that space isn't the sole province of Starfleet because Starfleet, like Jeff said, is still so new, it's still so small. And that they're still really beginning to build their exploratory capacity. So I think it's a combination of of what I like to call in Star Trek um, the the only ship in the quadrant syndrome. You know, you know, so the Enterprise is always the only ship in the quadrant or the only ship that can respond. I guess because of the conceit of the of Enterprise of the NX one being the first warp five capable ship, it could go the farthest. Therefore, it didn't have any reinforcements or didn't have any sister ships 
at the beginning, which could match it or match its distance or range. I think that could explain why you only really saw the NX-01 and only support ships uh, every so often. But it's really tough to extrapolate uh, from what we've seen on screen, just the, the true scale of Starfleet. But we know that there has to be some sort of apparatus in which the NX-01 has to be a part of. We just don't know how big it is. Well, I'd like to pick up on what Jeff said about where where we came from in terms of the Earth Agency or the um, United Earth Space Probe Agency or USPA and how that morphed into Starfleet because Starfleet Command was in charge of that and really trying to pick up the pieces of, of where humanity left off after World War III and the eugenics wars. We finally had this United Earth government and... In keeping with the tradition of what Gene Roddenberry wanted to see from humanity, we would have all come together as this one Earth, and we would have pooled all our resources, whatever resources we could find, in order to create these ships that would seek out new life and new civilizations and to boldly go into space to be able to expand our influence and our reach, which also meant being able to find planets or find resources that would help perpetuate this engine this Starfleet engine of being able to produce more ships and better resources. So in taking a look at, again, one of the firsts of Enterprise, this first fleet aspect, it makes a lot of sense to me that we would really be salvaging and trying to budget the resources in order to make the right decisions. In first flight, when the Warp 2 prototype was destroyed in the test flight experiment, I mean, Starfleet was like, that's over. That's it. That's It's done. And we're used to seeing as fans anything being replicated in Star Trek, you know, and especially in the 24th century where replicators can pretty much fabricate anything that you need on the job, in space, on a mission. So I think one thing that fans weren't really on board with was the fact that, yes, Starfleet is very small. You only really have one small band of 85-esque crewmen that are qualified to go out into space. And I say qualified with air quotes because they technically really weren't. They were trained as best as they could. But you only really had that one, I guess it would be, I guess that would be the flagship at the time, the NX-01. So I agree with both of you. I think that at this time, it just really is a handful of ships, and it's not the Starfleet that I think that people have come to know as being this giant Dominion battling fleet, you know, that where you see massive amounts of ships and going into combat. Because I know there are some arguments, and maybe you guys can talk to this point, where fans were like, well... If there was an invasion, where's Starfleet? How come they're not sending out just this mass amount of ships as a defensive line, you know, in our sector? I mean, how would you answer a fan like that when they were watching this for the first time? All right. Um, knowing that uh, Starfleet has got to be as small as it is, uh, that's just a huge amount of space to defend with only a handful of ships. Even if a bunch of ships are just impulse-only uh, defensive uh patrol craft that stay in the system to, to defend the system, that's still a very huge amount of space for them to patrol. And at this point, impulse engines aren't that fast either. And 
you've got, say, for example, the Zindi attack. They can pop out of space anywhere, anytime in the entire system, and no one knows where they're going to be, so they're going to spread out pretty thinly. So when they do pop up, it's going to take a long time for someone to intercept that chip to uh, to counterattack. And we saw that in uh, um, the episode when this, the Zindi probe attacked in the Expanse. It had a couple of minutes before someone was able to get a shot off at it. And then uh, when the full attack happened in zero hour, like there was nobody to be seen. Space is huge. There's no way that uh, a fleet that small with that little prep time could have defended that large of an area as effectively as 200 years later. Yeah, and there was likely no orbital defense platforms or... I think you see in Best of Both Worlds, although it was dispatched fairly quickly, the Mars defense perimeter, those probes or those automated drone aircraft, I mean, spacecraft that were sent out, but were quickly dispatched. But even back in the 22nd century, they didn't even have that to defend themselves against. So I think I think that's a very good point just in terms of understanding, you know, the, the Zindi probe was working with, with future technology, was working with, with the knowledge of the future against a Starfleet that was not the Starfleet that we know yet, that didn't have the capability, didn't have the resources, or even the experience to really defend against that type of assault. Then it was a surprise attack, too. I guess when... Um, I mean, I've had this, this this conversation with fans here and there at conventions, and they're saying, like, you know, Starfleet, you know, they, we have this idea that it's supposed to be grander than it is. I'm not sure if there was something in the storytelling that could have illustrated that a little bit more but to try and and segue into the next point what we did see regarding the evolution of the ships from the beginning of the phoenix project with zephram cochran to the nx project you saw in the credits a couple of different examples of different warp style ships because going back to what jeff said if we were trying to answer any type of defense call for for earth I mean, I think these ships were at best, except for Enterprise, which is the Warp 5 ship, these ships were going at, what, at least Warp 3, maybe Warp 3, 5. And there's a T-shirt, just to put this all in a reference, there's a T-shirt that I wear, and there's a T-shirt out there in the Star Trek online store where it shows the Enterprise, the NX-01, and it says, from here to Neptune in six minutes. In, in the 24th century, it's a blink of an eye. But in the 22nd century, that is a pretty huge engineering feat for pushing the engines that hard to do that it's kind of like the um it's like the kessel run that's that's about as good as the falcon can give you and that's about as good as the nx class can give you at the time so yes jeff i mean that's a great point space is vast and we just don't have the engine technology in the 22nd century to traverse that space as quickly as people may think because i think a lot of the fans were coming off of voyager and the technology that was involved with the Voyager ship and how fast it can go and all of the great feats and engineering that it can perform. So it's, it's kind of like thinking in reverse and going back to all those different examples in the credits, you had another ship that kind of filled in what the fleet would have looked like. And that was the warp Delta. So let's talk a little bit about that ship. It was designed by John Eves. It looks like an evolution of the space shuttle. So Will and Jeff, when you saw that in the credits, what did that, what did that, that inspire you to think about 
in terms of how it fit in the Starfleet, the very first Starfleet setting. You know, to be honest, when I first saw the the back of that ship, I thought it was a early NX-01. When I first saw it, I was like, oh, is that kind of the NX-01 with different engines? Because it has like rocket engines on the back almost. It, you know, it didn't really have the, uh, the same type of nacelles or the same type of greebles that you'd associate with a Starfleet ship. So I'm all like, oh, is that just... Uh, an early rocket-propelled NX-01, because you didn't really see the front of the ship. You really never see the front of the ship. But when you see it in other um, instances in the series, uh, most notably in Amira Darkly, it has very much that triangular shape of a nose that's very similar to the space shuttle or the future extrapolation of a space shuttle we see in the opening credits. So when you see that, in my mind, I made that connection. Like, oh, I got it. You know, That is clearly a progression from the next generation space shuttle to something that we're beginning to outfit with with Phoenix type technology, and I thought it was really neat. I thought it looked really cool. It, you know, those engines it made it look in a lot of ways like a mini Star Destroyer in a lot of ways. And I thought always thought that was very neat because it was very un Star Trek like. But that makes sense because we're we're deconstructing Star Trek right to build up to where we know it to be. So I always thought it was very neat. It's unfortunate you don't really see much of it, but I thought it was just a really great design. Yeah, it seemed like an evolutionary. Uh flow from the spacecraft that we have now moving forward towards the spacecraft that we would get in the series and it's it seems very much like a an in-between step that we would have to take to get from there to here now i like the note that you put in here will you say that you personally love this design because in your head canon you like to think that the vulcans provided technical data to starfleet on this this potential design and it was also been noted that Robert Bonichun, he he kind of described it as being like the the Starfleet version of a of a Romulan Federation hybrid because it does have those that that silhouette. So, do you think that uh, early on in the in the warp programs that the Vulcans were being uh, were they sharing with us in that sense? Were they being a little bit um, beneficial to us as? as Vulcans, as far as Vulcans could be, because we already know how the Vulcan-human-Starfleet relationship was in Archer's time, and let's dial that back probably 10, 15 years when they really got involved in the program. Do you think that, do you think that they were helping us in that sense? Uh, like Kevin Garnett said, Norm, anything's possible, so I figured, <laughs> I figured maybe, I, I think, I mean, this is totally just supposition on my part, so obviously... When John Eves designed the ship, he just, in his mind, he's like, I just want to make a cool ship design. So he said, hey, why don't we make a Federation or Starfleet Romulan hybrid? Because it looks like the Romulan Bird of Prey and Bounce of Terror. And, it, you know, when they're flying information in a mirror darkly, it really has that avian look to it. So for me, yeah. this is complete supposition, but also just me. I love filling in the blanks. So I'm like, why not Why not suppose the, the Vulcans perhaps were in a more conciliatory attitude initially at some point they became more of the vulcans of of enterprise of saval initially when the when they're a lot more restrictive but who's to say that there wasn't a share of technology or maybe an engineer saw an early vulcan design was inspired by it maybe it wasn't direct uh technical um provision but it was more of an inspiration an earth engineer saw that the an early discarded vulcan design and took it upon himself or took it upon herself to build uh, a ship that was reminiscent of that design and it turned out to be something that's very similar to uh, a Vulcan ship the reason why I say it's a Vulcan ship is maybe the Romulans also had intelligence on that Vulcan design and through sheer happenstance they designed a ship that has similar similar silhouette 
obviously a lot of kind of backtracking, a lot of filling in and, and assuming. But in my mind, like that's that's kind of a plausible, you know, in canon, in universe explanation as to why it bears a striking resemblance in my mind to a Romulan bird of prey. Trip did say in one episode that uh, human children had to learn about uh, Vulcan space explorers. So it would wouldn't be uh, too far of a stretch to say that they had a picture of one of their ships. Which episode is that? that you know, I, I totally forgot about that. Um, I don't remember the title of the episode off the top of my head, but I do remember he was he was talking to to Paul, and he said that you know human school children have to know the uh, the names of the Vulcan space missions, and to Paul comes back with name one, and he can't do it. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> that's that's a really good point. I wasn't good in that class. I actually think that was in Broken Bow because that could have been. Yeah, Trip was thumping his chest mm-hmm. a little bit about. Why we're out here and and how well educated we are? Yeah, I think that was to the Vulcans, though. and then she she promptly put him in his place and and that's why you know he was uh, he said well I didn't really do well in that class or I wasn't paying attention. Yeah, that's actually that's actually a really good point because maybe that explains why that adds another layer as to why they were so protective of the NX01. They're like this is our first original. They, they didn't say it that way, but it could be they had this sense of ownership that this was their first original design that could. That could go the fastest, that could go the farthest. They had a real sense of ownership that this was something that they really, humanity built itself, and they can really push these boundaries. Whereas previous versions of ships might have been more derivative. Yeah, um, there was another ship, the Sarajevo, which also had a, a very wedge-shaped design. Um, it actually looked kind of like uh, one of the uh, one of Galvatron's transformers from uh, the old eighties, um, but. Uh, <laughs> um, the Sarajevo, I mean, that also had a very Vulcan-looking design to it, so it could very well have been another inspiration by Vulcan design. Well, when Henry Archer and, and, and Cochran were kind of like um, canoodling and sharing notes about the warp engine, you can almost see in a way where they're putting these designs in order, and perhaps they were capitulating a little bit to the Vulcan High Command, saying like, okay, thank you for finding our warp signature. We're gonna We're going to work with you and kind of like use your benevolence and experience and wisdom and leadership, and we're going to build our first types of ships according to your designs and input. As we evolve along the way, and I think Henry Archer was kind of like this because we, we, we see his, his background crafted as a person who, who wanted to strike out on his own. When we finally got a chance to put his engine into the Warp 5 ship, you're right, Will, it's like this, this architecture is, is, is squarely Starfleet's. You know, it's not really, I mean, I'm sure there is some Vulcan technology in there, but this is where, this is where Starfleet ended up in this particular, you know, the, the saucer, the, the main saucer design, which is pretty much, pretty much became the overall design of Starfleet ships in terms of its iconography. But that all had to come from somewhere. And it obviously didn't come from the warp Delta ship. So one ship that was actually missing in the progression of the credits from the warp delta to the second warp delta, which is the model ship that young Jonathan Arch was flying around, and then you saw again in similitude, you didn't see the ship in between the delta and the NX01 in the credits that filled in the gap where we were moving towards that saucer section. And Eagle Moss Star Trek model ships just put out this model. It's fantastic. It's 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 issue number 44. And what I'm talking about is the Intrepid class. And I know Will's he's, he's chomping at the bit to, to jump all over this point because I know how much of a fan you are of this ship. 
But I really do think that this is the silhouette that bridges those two different icons of ships. And I'm, you know, take it away because I think that this is a fantastic looking ship. It's slowly becoming one of my favorite designs. And um, after after Will uh, deliberates on this, you'll you'll see why because his notes are very thorough on this particular ship, and I think you're really going to enjoy this segment. Perhaps too thorough because I just enjoy it so much, but I think it just has <laughs> such a, a great utilitarian look. Like the NX01 already has a really functional look, but the Intrepid really takes that to another level of of being utilitarian. It has the the nacelles which are slung over. It has these fins that are that look like that would belong on 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 a on a ship or an, on an aircraft that it would have to traverse the atmosphere for these fins, and it has uh, a very distinct half saucer shape clearly reminiscent of they're building out a saucer design but it's not the full saucer it's not the full 360 um, design of it and it just has a very functional utilitarian very much a bridge look even more so than what the warp delta was and we do see it in the expanse the uh the episode where archer returns back to earth and he's assaulted by Duras, and he's assisted by Starfleet. He's assisted by the Intrepid class, commanded by Captain Ramirez. And it's one of the first instances where we see another captain in another ship, and we actually see what the other ship is. And it's not later; it's not a sister ship like we see in later episodes of the NXO two, and it's not um, an admiral. It's just another similar ranked captain piloting a completely different class of ship, a ship that we've never seen before in the credits or in, in the, in this, in the show. And it just, it just has a really great design. The name itself is very, uh, borrows on Trek lore. Obviously the intrepid class of the 24th century, um, is, is another well-known intrepid in my own personal head canon. The intrepid class, of the 24th century borrowed, went back and said, we're going to take the name for the, the original intrepid, the 22nd century intrepid. And I just think it's just a solid design that I wish we saw more of, in terms of um, of fleet actions, or when there are shots of Starfleet, when they when they sweat, uh, when they um, flash back to scenes of Earth, seeing it in action would have been really great. So, Jeff, what do you think about the Intrepid class? Uh, I, uh, I I was really impressed by the the design. I mean, it looked like it was kind of a halfway point between what came before and the NX class, and it seemed pretty obvious that this was kind of a, a prototype of some kind that maybe this was something that they built to test out uh, design uh, stresses before they built the full NX class. It looked a little bit smaller. Maybe it was uh, easier to make, cheaper, uh, you know, whatever. Um, but uh, it, it kind of fit within that design lineage. And the other, uh, uh, it it's kind of reminds me of a little bit of uh, a sea creature of some kind um just like a um like a ray um just the way that it kind of uh has almost like wings uh, that kind of go off on the side um i thought that was an interesting design choice on that well let's take a look at at this because it really was the in-between between the the warp five, well, the warp delta, and then you had the warp two, because this ship was warp three, and the warp two obviously had the standard nacelle type structure 
that we all kind of like understand now in terms of the visual vocabulary and the uh, the silhouette iconography of of the warp engines of the 22nd century. So taking a look at that, what would the fins have provided in terms of the structure? Because it's not an atmospheric ship. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a space faring ship. So but do usually we know that foils, maybe it was atmospheric? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of like speculating on that because when I saw that, when you see fins or ailerons or rudders, Usually that's be able that's that's there so that it can manipulate drag and bend wind and all that kind of stuff. And forgive me, any of you engineers out there that know this stuff backwards and forwards, I am a layman when it comes to that type of that type of vocabulary. So all I can really speculate on is fins in space, because you usually don't see that. You know, especially on Star Trek ships. So you think it's something that when uh when John Eves was designing this, it was just like, hey, you know what? It would look cool. If a fan saw it in, in, um, when they're trying to adopt, uh, wanting to, to enjoy the show, would they be like, why would there be fins in space? So what do you think about that? That's just a small detail, but it's, it's the small details to fans that kind of like create these larger debates. Maybe it detached. Maybe, maybe because it was an early test bed, a smaller test bed, that it was either built somewhere that had to go through an atmosphere um, before it entered space, that it wasn't f- a full deep space ship, that it um, operated in either a high, high atmosphere, low orbit, and that could mm-hmm. have kind of a, a, a low to medium range uh, space capability, but didn't have the deep space range that the NX-01 clearly had. So maybe because it was limited in its its deep space um operations and that it can operate in an atmosphere maybe that's why it had fins because it, it was in this this intermediary um role where it operated in an atmosphere because we never actually that's another good point is we never see in the 22nd century the equivalent of of aircraft or the equivalent of i mean we know that shuttle pods can go into the atmosphere and those have fins right so exactly yeah. we, we don't know if Beyond the shuttle pods, is there another type of intermediary craft that operates in an atmosphere but can also transcend into low orbit and beyond? And maybe the Intrepid class is one of those ships where they were testing the limits of of the endurance of this ship. Maybe that's another reason why the only instance where we see the Intrepid class in any great detail is when archers are turning back to Earth and it's only then that the Intrepid class can intercept and assist the NX-1 because beyond that, if they're not coming towards them, they're out of range. I mentioned Eagle Moss earlier on because, and I don't want to do this, you know, this this part as a as a plug for Eagle Moss per se, but they do a really good job in terms of corralling a lot of detail and providing it as canon in their magazines. And there are just a couple of interesting facts about the Intrepid class that they put into their into their companion dossier, the magazine that that features with the Intrepid. And one of one of the things that always puzzled me about this ship when I first saw it on screen and later on in, in images online is that this ship doesn't have a registry on it. The actual CGI model doesn't have a registry on it like NX-01 Enterprise or NX-02 Columbia. And the reason why, as provided uh, as a detail in the Eagle Moss companion guide for the Intrepid was... To create a generic fleet ship, this model could be easily replicated as a digital asset 
so that it didn't have its own rendered version with its own name on it. So they could just kind of like take that one model and drop it in as they needed it so that they could create this illusion of a fleet. See, so and I didn't know that about uh, about CGI rendering. I didn't know that that particular detail, having the registry number on it, say between the the NX01 and say in the NX02, those are two completely different modeled out assets because they would have to render the names as as part of those assets. So, looking behind the scenes, that's an interesting way of improving the storytelling when they needed it, especially in the Expanse when kind of like when it came out, and for. Sadly, the future episodes that we never got, where we probably would have seen a little bit of of the Intrepid being used as a defense line for Starfleet. It was uh, also intended as a backup to the Warp 5 program in case the NX program completely failed. So that's probably why maybe the way it was designed was because it was cost-saving. You don't have to build out the full saucer. Again, this is all speculation. And... Again, it's you just see kind of like the elements of the stepping stone from this warp three, warp three point five capable ship to the warp five ship, and then another last interesting point, which I thought was really really cool, was when the NX program ships like the Enterprise and like the Columbia, and then the obviously the Intrepid ships never kind of like made it to made it you know to the top of the line of Starfleet. All of these were mothballed after a certain amount of time to make way for the Daedalus class ships which kind of like started more of the progression of towards the the ships that I think Gene Roddenberry really wanted to see because wasn't Gene Roddenberry's original ship design for the Enterprise Jeff the giant globe structure in the front with the warp nacelles on the back that's what they wanted to go with first right? yeah that was one of Matt Jeffrey's original designs for uh, the Enterprise um and actually the the Daedalus that we know now is actually inverted from his uh, initial drawing um so actually the secondary hull was on top like with the kelvin in the 2009 movie with two warp nacelles on the on the bottom and those nacelles were actually directly connected to the globe as well um there was no uh um struts connecting it to the secondary hull um and then we see the evolution of that mm-hmm. ship turning into what the pastor mm-hmm. all the way you know into the 24th century when we see the pastor and the very final episode of next generation that was all good things right? yeah i love the Daedalus class it's just a really just a solid retro futurist design, which really holds up. I, I remember posting the Babel conference not too long ago. A on Deviant Art, there was an artist who made an upgraded uh, version of what the Daedalus class could look like in the Enterprise or TOS mm-hmm. universe uh, timeline, and it looked gorgeous. It looked beautiful. It, it, it had all the same lines, but it was upgraded with a more of a modern aesthetic, and it and it just looks fantastic still. And I think. You know, like we say on Warp Five all the time. You know, if Enterprise had continued, who'd have you know? Who knew we we might have seen a Daedalus class being kind of like this next generation ship um, beyond the NX01. Although I do know in the books, I think it was actually the reverse that the Daedalus was actually a test bed that didn't pan out. Actually, the NX01 was kind of where they ended up going in advance, but the Daedalus was kind of like an interesting offshoot of that. But there's uh, there's always different explanations for all these sorts of kind of early ships. Yeah, the uh, the game the, tough- the game uh, Star Trek Legacy also had an, uh, a, a Daedalus class in it as well, and it had that same kind of upgraded Enterprise era design melded with the original, and it looked really good. And in the um, like you were saying in the books that um, the Daedalus was kind of a parallel development with the NX class, 
and it that's one another thing that I found interesting was that they were just radically different designs because you have the saucer and then you have the sphere and it was the saucer that right. caught on but the sphere didn't and so I, I, I found that kind of interesting and the in the books uh, they they mentioned that the, the Daedalus class was cheaper and easier to make and that's why they made more of them and as we saw on the show it took them forever to build an NX class um, so they were able to apparently crank out the, the Daedalus class ships pretty quickly and upgrade those to the Warp 5 engines. I like that explanation of having parallel designs because it has a very real-world parallel to engineering now. Like with the, the Joint Strike Fighter or the F-35, right? You had Boeing and Lockheed going at it. I remember watching in high school with rapt attention, there was a frontline special about the development of the next generation fighter and how you know, Boeing and Lockheed had different designs and it was like very high stakes because the Air Force was only going to choose one. And, you know, they were going all in and it was very distinct designs. And that makes a lot of sense in an environment where they're still building these ships, you know, trying out these different designs, see what works because there are limited resources, right? And Starfleet's still, um, you know, experimenting. But that actually brings up another point too is, you know, remember in the motion picture in in the rec, in the wreck area, there's that SCV three hundred, that the the ring type ship, right? The ring mm-hmm. ship, yeah. And I think for a long time, I know I wondered about it, but I think fans probably made that connection too. Is when they later saw the Vulcan ships that were the ring ships. I think there was a, a really common fan explanation that the SCV three hundred was, you know, the humans' attempt to replicate a Vulcan ring drive, and that was one of the maybe the an offshoot of an alternate engine or maybe it was a very early iteration of a, of a warp engine, but that would make a lot of sense um, matching that TMP, that brief um, scene in TMP with kind of what we know about Vulcan ring drive technology. Well, another image of that ship also showed up uh, in Enterprise uh, in the 602 Club. There was a picture of that uh, on the wall. Oh, was there? Wow, I missed that. And then we also saw it on Admiral Marcus's Cadenza mm-hmm. when you saw that really nice kind of like a across the table pan shot of all the different fleet ships, all the different um, uh, Starfleet vessels from, and, and in that universe, they showed the NXL one. So I always found that surprising in the JJ new universe that, and this is, you know, obviously past the, uh, the Nero incident and it was on Marcus's table. Very, very plain to see as was the ring ship. And then all the future iterations of of all of the flagships for Starfleet all the way up to the Vengeance. So these are the small details that kind of tie everything back to this design structure. And it would have been really interesting to see how they would have explained away the large spherical shape of the Daedalus class to the Constitution class. Because that, for me, would have been like the larger jump in terms of streamlining the lore, the technical lore of where they went from, how would you go and why would you go from, or why would you have gone from a giant sphere, which obviously served you in some capacity, whether it's budgetary reasons or technical reasons or engineering reasons, to the standard Jeffrey design that you saw in the 23rd century. So just to kind of sidebar this, how do you think that they would have gone and explained that away from our headcanon's type of lore point of view. Why would they have done that? Or would the Daedalus class would have, would they have just relegated that strictly for, for exploration? Because 
going back to the size of the fleet, which is kind of like the point of this episode, you're really only dealing with, again, a handful of ships and a limited amount of resources. We don't have the replicator technology to pump out materials. We really don't have the economy to be able to support being able to, to just to, to fabricate starships at a whim. Obviously, the Vulcans aren't going to help us in that capacity because that's not what they're there for. They're there for logistical and technical advice. So how do you make that choice? Do we just go focus on exploration with the Daedalus class, focus on military and defense with the NX class? Do you think that that was a possibility? Maybe. I think in my mind, the Daedalus class for me makes sense because of the, obviously the vastly more volume that you could put in a globe as opposed to a saucer. That that the Daedalus was the backbone of when when the Federation was still really beginning to expand and grow. So after the Federation had formed, when you had the stability of Andor and Teller and Earth and Vulcan, and you had member planets beginning to join, you had the Daedalus class being the backbone of the, the the colony or the colonization or the support ships that would go to other planets, supply them, give them all the necessary resources and infrastructure to really build the member worlds of Starfleet. And then you had the NX being that kind of exploratory slash defense role because it was smaller, it was more nimble. But then you had the later on the Constitution class, which had the saucer, but you also had the secondary drive, bridging that gap between defense, pure defense and pure exploration because you had the extra room, the extra power of the secondary drive in addition to the saucer. And... That's where it was. That's where the the general purpose ship was born. The Constitution class, which is it could really do anything. It could be exploration. It could be defense, but it had the size and the versatility to do both missions. And that's where you you had the evolution of the general exploratory, humanitarian slash defense imperative of Starfleet. But in my mind, that's the only way it works. Is I think Dalis is perfect for you know the type of ship that can go to a planet and really you know have all the resources aboard to, to start a colony, a settlement, and just to provide them the long-term support that, you know, a saucer ship, especially the NX-01 that has just a saucer, basically, can't do. Yeah, my uh, my take on it is that the NX class was just, like, top of the line, cutting edge, bleeding edge uh, on everything, and the Daedalus was kind of just a step or two behind it had good enough that they could crank out a bunch of them quickly but the nx class was just the really good stuff and so they both had their place they were able to produce a lot of dataless class ships so they got a lot of attention especially in the history books but then the nx class was more of the high profile um and the just really more technical uh um, the 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 better uh, the best of the best basically, um, and they had all the good stuff. They had the best chefs, and uh, um, <laughs> and they got all, all all of all of the good uh, the best stuff. The best crews went to those. Everything else went into the Daedalus class. It's just there were so many of them because they were a more simple design and they were a couple of steps behind. So the components that went into them were more readily available. So it didn't take them, you know, three or four years per ship to build one. They could crank out two or three every few months. Um, that's well, my like take. The workhorse of the fleet. Yeah. Right, right, right. I mean, you, you kind of have like your station wagon, you have your Mercedes, right? 
you know, you have the station wagon. It gets all the daily jobs done. It, it, it ferries the uh, family to and fro. It goes to the amusement park. It drops off the kids. It goes to school. It goes to soccer. It gets beat up, but it does all the functionary jobs to keep the the day to day going. And then you have the warp. You know, they have the NX ships that go out there and explore and expand the sphere of influence for Starfleet. And uh, just to segue back into the NX ships, so now we're talking about the sister the next ship of the line, the next flagship, if you will. And that would be the NX-02. That would be the Columbia. And as the, uh, as the NX-01, as the Enterprise was going about doing its um, first stab at the mission, the O2 was pretty much on the heels of it. It had to have been, you know, in space dock being assembled while the O1 was out there around probably season two. Obviously, the NX-02 came out and saved the O1's bacon in season three in the expanse, but they had to have been being built kind of like in a parallel situation, much like the two Death Stars were. I mean, everyone's like, oh, there's, you know, the Death Star was blown up and all of a sudden, you know, maybe a year or two later, there's the second one being built. So obviously Starfleet had a plan and they had the budget to be able to execute that plan. So let's talk a little bit about the O2 and the improvements that were made in the O2 over the O1 because... Now, when we went to the bridge set of the Columbia, there were certain differences. There were a couple more support struts. There were a couple more monitors. Everything looked just a little bit more high-tech because... And let's put kind of like a a real-time geopolitical filter on this. I think that Starfleet was getting the benefit of public support. I think that probably more was being... uh, more funding was being approved through proper channels, through the government of the time to improve the Starfleet program. So now, like you said, Jeff, the NX program, especially the O2, was getting the bleeding edge technology necessary to expand the influence of the warp program even further out into space and also put it on the line of defense. So I never really actually thought about it in those terms because, you know, you're, all, you're always thinking about, oh, let's talk about the Enterprise. Let's talk about the Enterprise. It's the star of the show. But we always like putting that, again, that real-world filter into what if this universe was real. And the NXO, too, it was, it was the sister, but it was also kind of the princess because it was getting a little bit more attention spent on it. And it was going to get better weapons. It was going to get better technology. It was going to get better sensors. It was going to get better armor plating. So... What did you guys think about that when you first saw the O2? Did you automatically assume that it was going to be just this more improved ship, or do you think it was going to be just a parallel to the O1? I thought for the most part it was going to be pretty much the same at first. And then as they continued to show it more on the show, um, then I kind of got the impression that, well, while they're making it, they're making improvements. Um, things that they're learning as the NX01 is out in space they're sending those reports back and implementing those changes into the NX-02. And that also could be another explanation for why it's taking so long to build the NX-02, because as they're building it, they're going back and ripping things out and changing it. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, especially in the episode Home, where, where Archer's debriefing um, um, Hernandez, you know, he's saying that, you know, you're going to need a lot more weapons. You know, I didn't think I was going to need any weapons at all. We're a ship of peace, a ship of exploration, but you're going to need a lot of them. Bring the Makos with you. You know, it's a completely different imperative. Obviously, you know, Starfleet's going to have to balance that mission. But I think in addition to all the tactical reports that, you know, he's sending back to Starfleet, there's a lot of technical data. I'm sure that 
you know, Trip is relaying so much information about what he's learned about deep flight, uh, deep space travel, and what he's learning about, you know, running a warp five engine under duress or, or extreme conditions. So that would make a lot of sense that they're tinkering as they go, which is kind of delaying continuously the eventual launch of, of the ship. But, you know, on a on a lighter note, I always love how on the bridge of the NXO2, right behind Captain Hernandez, there are those two giant glowing pillars that just have like these giant lights going through. And I'm just like, what purpose do those lights actually bring? Like, do <laughs> they like just the make the ship more powerful? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> just the, the ship is more powerful now just with these like pulsating lights and like a ra- like a random um like strut with like a random monitor like right in the middle of the bridge. I always thought that was the interesting monitor facing directly at the view screen so everybody exactly. can see it. Yeah, exactly. So I obviously I know that, you know, the real world explanation is that they gotta do something to make it look somewhat different, but from in my mind I'm just like that makes no sense. That make that adds no value, but it just looks it I you know I love the fact that it looks silly, but I think those are the uh, disinformation monitors that they put up. Oh, look at you our shield the, display um, that's clearly facing the view screen or something. But supposedly we were supposed to believe that that was the evolutionary process because in all good things, that's what the bridge looked like on the O1. It still it had those same struts on and with the same kind of monitor setup. So, you know, oh, maybe in, that was in, the, in the final episode, you mean these are the voyages? Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I'm sorry. Th- I'm sorry. These are the voyages. Yeah. I mean, so. I don't know. Maybe those maybe those uh, design enhancements took hold. I'm not sure exactly what it would do to like superstructure or internal uh, your structural integrity, or maybe that's where the the first inertial dampeners were approved. I mean, who knows? But it's it's always kind of like neat to see the improvements. And Will, you brought up a really good point about what what the NXO2 became because when it was getting the reports back from the captain's log and from the subspace beacons that they were dropping uh, throughout the course of the first you know, two seasons, the the build of the OT would have changed because of instances like fight or flight, like Silent Enemy, where the Enterprise is starting to encounter alien life forms that are hostile. Now, up until this point, the ships that we've been talking about, by and large, have been exploratory vessels. And we haven't really been venturing out so deep into space because the warp engines just didn't have that capability. I mean, you were dealing with a warp two with a prototype uh, in first flight when A.G. Robinson and Archer were testing out the limits of just that engine. And that just pretty much like made it to the moon or, or, or I'm not sorry, uh, around with Jupiter. So then you had the warp Delta and then you had the Intrepid that was going warp three, five. Those aren't military kitted out vessels per se. Those are, Let's see what's out there because we believe that our mission is one of exploration and peace because that's how Archer was at the very beginning of his mission. So now the NXO2 is hearing all of these battle reports and all of these examples of we need to defend the ship better. We need better technology. We need better sensors and we need stronger weapons. That's not the ship that was being built in tandem with the Enterprise. So do you think that in some way informed Hernandez up to a point where she was like, you know what, why are all these changes being made to my ship? Because this ship should have been launched earlier. Because I think she actually makes mention of that. It's like, you know, we're still being built, but we should have been on our mission slightly earlier than this. I think that's kind of like where that whole military 
provincial like government policy making type of superstructure and oversight Senate committee type stuff is going on. We're like, you know what? We're getting our butts handed to us out there because we don't have the strength. Let's reinforce our ship, integrate the Mako branch of our government into these ships and go out there and do what we need to do. Is that, do you think that there was a possibility why the NXO2 always felt like it was somehow strapped together a little bit more than the Enterprise was? Because I always thought the Enterprise just felt sleeker. And the O2 felt like it was just kind of added on, like, you know, elements were added on, like the struts. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think I think it's always going to live in the shadow of the NXO1 in a lot of ways because we were just expecting the NXO1 to kind of be you know, the quote unquote, the flagship or the default, right? So what are you going to make the NXO2, how are you going to make it different? You're going to make these pretty much cosmetic changes to the bridge that you can't just to distinguish it. But beyond that, you really can't do much. And I think, um, I think that's the best in-universe explanation, the best in-universe um, continuity to explain why, you know, the NXO2 had a longer development process. I think that was very much a, a development process that, was taking into account that the NX-1 was rushed, right? After season one, Archer said, you know, we rushed the ship out. We weren't ready. So I think here, not only were they incorporating information that being relayed back to them, I think there was all maybe a layer of, of caution saying, we got to get this one right. So the second ship that comes out really has to be ready, not rushed out. And that's because the NX-1 was, was, was rushed out, so... Yeah, that was a big point on uh, Silent Enemy when they were trying to install the phase cannons on the ship, that they had all the parts for them, they just never been assembled or installed. And that's another thing that they were probably making absolutely sure that that ship was combat ready before it went out. And that could take a while, I'm sure. So another thing that I, I found really interesting, and this is just kind of like a nit that I have to pick about the designation of starships. I always felt that... now. We always say that, you know, the Enterprise is the NX-01. It comes from the NX program. And the Columbia is the NX-02. Now, as a Star Trek fan, I've always been under the impression that NX, as we saw with the Excelsior, it was the NX, you know, the NX designation. I always thought that that was experimental or a prototypical ship, like a ship that's still getting kind of like the the bugs and the gremlins kind of like worked out of it. It hasn't had a proper shakedown. It hadn't... It hadn't been seasoned yet from a full mission, like the way that the Constitution class ships were. So in this sense, if the Enterprise itself, the NX-01, was the ship that was supposed to go, go through all the shakedowns, and if the reports that were coming back were informing how to improve the next ship of the line, then why would the Columbia still have the NX designation? I know that they're born from the same project, the NX project, and that's the Warp 5 project. But wouldn't the Columbia then be the technical first ship on the line that's been debugged and been streamlined? I mean, did you guys feel that same way when you saw the designation of the Columbia? And like, well, no, the Columbia really should be an NCC designation, shouldn't it not? Uh, that's not how I saw it. Uh, it. The way I saw it was the NCC was the designation that was in use by Starfleet in the 23rd century. But at this point, we're far enough in the past where there are ships like Spock had mentioned the DY-100 class or the DY-500 class mentioned in the Next Generation. The NX class, I felt, was 
an extension of that. So you've got the classes are designated by combinations of letters, and this just happens to be NX. Um, and NCC was perhaps another vessel that we hadn't seen yet. You know, in the books they said that was the Daedalus class, but, you know, that's the uh, only other place that we uh, hadn't have seen uh, an NCC designation that early was the Daedalus class. Um, but the uh, NX designation, like I said, I, I felt that was the class name. It was, And so NX-01, it's the first ship of the NX class. And NX-02 is the mm-hmm. second ship of the NX class. And later on, Starfleet adopts the NCC designator, perhaps because of the DY-100s, or I mean, excuse me, because of the uh, the Daedalus class, uh, or perhaps for another reason, they use NCC for all of their registries and not a different registry for every class. And maybe the NX being used for experimental uh, NCC could be a hat tip retroactively to the NX class. Um, but as far as I know, that hasn't been established anywhere. You know, the other thing that I found interesting, and it's something that we always kind of poke a little bit of fun at because the original series didn't really have a, a series Bible that a lot of TV shows and a lot of series and a lot of movies create before they they produce, you know, something of, of this nature, something of, of this depth and detail. Because we all know that fans nowadays, you know, they love being able to find the inconsistencies of these details. I always wondered when they would have adopted the USS designation, like the USS Enterprise. I've actually never really seen like concrete evidence what exactly the USS designation means. And I'm not sure if they touch about that a little bit more in the books. I know now Jeff, you, you you're a pretty big fan of like all of the literature that's come out, you know, with the novels and stuff, but I know NCC, I know it's always been kind of bantered around as Naval Commission. And they threw the extra C in there because in the 1960s we were we were in the space race with Russia, and it was kind of like this pseudo joint U.S.-Russian conglomeration that would have been the, the prototypical government past the eugenics wars. So you had the NCC. It kind of like looked cool. By the way, everyone that's listening out there, a lot of the stuff we all know is established as just because it either looked or sounded cool. But we lo- what. We love explaining things away, don't we, Will? We always say that. It's all so. about filling in the blanks. That's, I mean, Enterprise is all about filling in the blanks because we didn't get very much. So I love the fact that we can just speculate. We're just putting stuff together. The reason why I bring up the USS part is because when we went into an Amira Darkly parts one and two, we saw another NX ship, the NX-01 ISS Enterprise. It actually des- it specifically says that ISS Enterprise, but. In the analog of our universe, our enterprise doesn't say USS. Why do you think they added that detail? Well, at this point, it was just the United Earth Space Probe Agency. It was the United Earth ship. It, if anything, it would have been UESS. Um, in the original series, Kirk referred a couple of times to the enterprise as the United Spaceship or the United uh, Starship Enterprise, and that was apparently what the USS stood for at that point. Yeah, that's what I thought, yeah. too. Right, um, right. As far as I know, Archer never said United Spaceship Enterprise or United Starship. He was always just the Starship Enterprise. So if anything, it would be right. SS Enterprise. And I do believe the designation of the Intrepid, the ship that we talked about earlier, was the SS Intrepid. So it would have been, you know, logically it would have been Starship mm-hmm. Intrepid. I don't know. Sometimes I, I'm, I'm looking for something a little bit 
with a little bit more fortitude, a little bit more depth behind those. But as I mentioned before, in the 1960s, when these guys were kind of putting this together, you know, you had you, you had uh, Gene Roddenberry and you had Matt Jeffries and you had Hua Ching and you had all these people kind of like putting together this literally by the seat of their pants. I don't think they really had the the storybook Bible of details where um, where they can say like, oh, no, you know, they could go to their script editor and say like, oh, no, Captain Kirk would definitely say United Earth Space Probe Agency ship. I mean, it's kind of like going all the way back to Forbidden Planet and they had uh, the sh- it was more of a ship designation than a name. It was. Oh gosh, forgive me, fans, for for not remembering it. But it was like the C five forty seven or something like that. It was like a really just technical name of the ship. There was no kind of love to it, and 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 maybe maybe that's why they just added a little bit more flair. Because Forbidden Planet really is kind of like it's kind of like where all of this flavor came from for Star Trek. I mean, it really kind of like is the progenitor of the cage in a way. So, and that I'm sorry, that's a huge digression. It's just <laughs> sometimes we go that. We're way. all about digressions here, Norm. It's okay. Uh, I know this is the um, the the, uh, the epitaph of uh, Warp Five. We're all about digressions. <laughs> I think Jeff's explanation as to as to the dy and X, uh, and X is a superb piece of of continuity weaving because it it makes sense in 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 that kind of larger arc. But I see where you're coming from from your initial question, Norm. Is you know if NXO one is experimental, then the NXO two should be. Uh, not the NX designation because, you know, uh, you know, out of universe, the real world explanation, we were first introduced to NX back in Star Trek three, right? With the NX 2000 and later on with the right. NX, you know, the Excelsior class, yeah. seven, four, two, six, five, the defiant from deep space nine. So we were always familiar with NX being just an experimental prototype. Right. But then here you see it not just being a registry for a prototype. It's really being adopted as a class name, which honestly, I feel like, only hardcore fans would ever, ever notice or care about other people like, oh, that's a cool name, right? I think, you know, what Jeff said is just that makes a lot of sense of just if you're trying to weave everything together and it makes sense, you know, NX would just kind of be a very straightforward designation that later on had more of a ceremonial um, hat tip for the very first Warp 5 ship. And that's why it's an experimental designation now. Okay, so I'm going to ask, again, forgiveness from the Forbidden Planet fans one more time, but I looked it up. It's the C-570D. I think I just added, like, one more number to it, so I'm sorry. I've only seen the movie a handful of times. But I'd like to actually put a question out to our listeners about this particular topic. What did you think about the the naming and class designation system of these ships? Because it really got the the full treatment when next generation came out. I mean, you know, it was, it was obviously far more consistent. It was referenced with a lot more detail. And then as the shows went on, but okay, so wait, hold on a second. This brings up an interesting thing. The defiant was also an annex class ship and it was the only one of its kind. And then it got destroyed and it was still called the NX. But when the Sao Paulo, when it took over, what was that? Was that a, was that an NX as well? Yeah, it was NX because, on the on the actual studio design, uh, I think they didn't have. It was near the end of the series. They didn't have enough money to kind of go back and give it a new designation. So it was the exact same registry as the first Defiant, and it was still called, you know, NX. You know, I think seven four two six five seven four two zero five. Yeah, right. So they still gave it the NX name. Although I think when they interviewed um, Ron Moore or Ira Stephen Bear, they said 
if we had the budget, we would have made it the defiant A, right? Because just like the Enterprise, you know, uh-huh. the first one was destroyed. The next one that gets built is the A, right? But I think at that point, they were so strapped for funds. They're just like, we're going to use the exact same studio CGI model, which had the exact same designation. Mm-hmm. So I think the the in-universe explanation for that is, you know, they just kept the proto- uh, the prototype designation as a, as a sentimental um, keepsake that didn't even change it to A. But in my mind, you know, the Sao Paulo was defined A because that would make sense, right? Uh, the, the way that I've seen it was that they kept the registry number from the Sao Paulo. They just changed the name. Um, and it's just on the model that they use for the effect shots, they just didn't have the budget to change the number. Um, oh, do they keep the Sao Paulo registry? So the second defined has a different number? Yeah, I, th- I, think, oh, they, okay. I think they actually said that in I think the, that's right, um, yeah. the Avatar books. But uh, um, also, I I, th- I think it would have still been an NX because it still had a cloaking device and no other Defiant class ship had a cloaking device. But and the, the funny thing did is... Did it is have that a cloaking the, device? The, the, did they use a cloaking device like in the last battle? Because I don't remember now. They've I remember there was an episode and we, 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 we could go way <laughs> deep into this, but I do remember that there was one episode where they were... Um, I remember they were cloaked for some reason, and I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Niners, that that uh, I can't speak to any type of expertise on this because it's not my show per se. But I do believe that the Defiant did have a cloaking device, didn't it? Oh yeah. Anyway, Abs- so oh yeah, the, oh, it absolutely had a cloaking device. Uh, the first one okay. had one that was loaned by the Romulans, but it's after it was destroyed, right? So the one that had the cloaking device, it was destroyed. If the second replacement one, the Sao Paulo, if it was if the only reason why the first Defiant had a cloaking device was because it was on loan from the Romulans. Did the second ship have it as well? I don't know. Oh, I see what you yeah, mean. Yeah, I, I, I don't think they mean. ever said but, that uh, whether it did or not on screen, but I know it did in the books. So there, there's, an, again, another one of those kind of interesting detail, consistency, inconsistency, slash you can kind of like debate this until the cows come home. But I do want to like add, ask our listeners, email us in um, and let us know either you know through email or through the Babel conference when you hear this part of the episode let us know your thoughts on this because obviously there are a couple different opinions here and i don't think that any one of them has you know um any one of them has like a, a true foothold in star trek because star trek itself did not provide a true foothold so it's an interesting thing and and you're seeing it in uh three two different series in one movie so that's one of those the, the, the interesting things about the details is that again with, there was no real kind of uh, kind of guideline for it. So, uh, but the devil's in the details, and we love we love debating with the devil, don't we? So, uh, in in wrapping up this whole in this whole episode, I think that the designers and I think that the ships that we saw in Enterprise and we, and and the way that we got to see like just the the breadth of the fleet in a way was really refreshing because. Not every single ship that you saw in Enterprise, whether it was Starfleet or the, or whether that you saw at the end of Babel 1 in the Anar when they were trying to find the Romulan ship, they weren't the Starfleet ships that you know. And when you challenge people's expectations like that, it can go one of two ways. It can either be accepted wow that was really neat and thanks for providing a new fresh approach to creating this origin of what all these ships look like or it can go the other way and saying like you know what that doesn't really work for me i think that's one of the reasons why 
the initial success of the show wasn't there because so much of what people anticipated Star Trek to look like wasn't delivered in the show because that's not what the show was about. It was about what influenced what Star Trek was supposed to look like in a way. And it's kind of hard trying to deconstruct what's already been so firmly cemented in the audience's minds. But I think that's where now the future success of Star Trek is or Enterprise is actually uh, enjoying because people are going back to this and watching it for the first time or rewatching it for the first time. So just to get your final thoughts on this, guys, how did you feel just in general about seeing this very first Starfleet? Did you actually kind of observe that as fact that this was the first Starfleet? Or did you kind of like say, you know what, I think they could have done a better job trying to like show the breadth and the strength of of just all of these ships and the way it formed the the initial kind of foundation for the coalition of planets as Starfleet. Yeah, I really liked it. I think it made a lot of sense. I think it was what we saw, although I wish we saw more of it. I think what we did see was a clear progression to uh, the NX design. Um, I think when we get uh, Doug Drexler back on the show, which I think is something that both me and, and Norm want at some point down the road, I think, um, you know, on the, in the Babel conference, I was very, I actually put myself out there saying I initially didn't like the NX design. I, I'm initially saying that, you know, it looked too futuristic or looked too 24th century, didn't have kind of that that more retro look of the original ships. And and to Doug's, you know, everlasting credit, he actually went on the Babel conference and like called me out on it saying like, oh, actually there was a, uh, there was a rhyme and reason to designing the NX the, uh, the way we did. And it really converted me to, to that opinion. But I, me- I remember initially not liking the NX when I first saw it and kind of seeing that design uh, aesthetic of the 22nd century, but seeing how it tied into those earlier ships, the Warp Delta and Trepid, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I know it's definitely not canon, but in recent um, in recent years since Enterprise went off the air, you know, Doug Drexler came out saying, you know, there was plans to add a secondary hull to the NX. And for me, that makes the design so much more um, consistent, I think, with, with the larger continuity of ships. I think some people don't like the fact that they kind of sling, uh, that, that there was a plan to put a hull on the bottom of the NX-01, but I think for me, it kind of really builds that that legacy of those ships, right? You see the progression from Phoenix, Warp Delta, Intrepid to NX to NX refit. I think it makes a lot of sense, and I just wish we saw more of those types of ships aside from the, the main hero ship. Well, I mean, the NX refit makes a lot of sense because when you increase the hull size, you increase the size of the warp chamber so that you'll be able to actually pump it. You just basically have the volume of space to be able to create a giant, you know, the the giant warp, um, the warp generator for the dilithium crystals. And you have the whole matrix that you can just pump out uh, just more power. So that made more sense to me. So sorry, I I jumped in there, but I I was thinking about that. And by the way, if you guys want to see what this looks like, take a look at the Polar Lights NX Refit Kit. It is absolutely gorgeous. I can't say enough good things about it. If I were a model maker, I would make it, but I'm not the greatest model maker in the world. So, But I am a good image oogler, and I oogle over that image all the time. So how about you, Jeff, uh, just in terms of the general scope of, of seeing the first fleet? Did it, did it meet your expectations, or uh, would you have liked to have seen a little bit just deeper involvement with with having those ships on screen and, and seeing more of their uh, their influence in terms of the first fleet. I was like Will. I was uh, initially uh, not 
the biggest fan of the design of the Enterprise, um, but it grew on me fairly quickly, um, especially once I saw it on screen and I could see how they were intending it to be ahead of its time and just like I was saying earlier, the bleeding edge of the technology of uh, of the 22nd century. And so I could see how it would have a lot of the design features that we would see on the later ships, even well into the 24th. And once I got it, that as the, uh, the explanation in my head, it, it was easier to accept that design and I was able to be more comfortable with it and I grew to like it. Um, I actually uh, like it quite a lot now. Um, and then I, um, compared that to the other ships that showed up on, on the series. And those also, um, were totally different designs and that reinforced just how ahead of its time that design was. And that's something else that I just really appreciated about, uh, how they displayed all the different types of shows, uh, ships on the show. And you could then see just, uh, how they were trying a little bit of everything, seeing what worked and what didn't. And uh, you could have one design that looks like a Transformer, and you can have another design that looks like a space shuttle, and another one that looks like a saucer. And uh, apparently the one that worked best was the one that looked like a saucer. So that's what they would go with for future ship designs. Remember when they used to call the Annex One the Akira Prize? Oh yes, I was one of them for a little bit. <laughs> right, but that's I think yeah. I, exactly. I think I had to get over that hump because mm-hmm. I love the Akira class, right? But I think now, like you know, the reason the the way you get over that hump is the Akira Prize, you know, borrowed from the Annex One, right? Mm-hmm. So they went back and borrowed from that, right? So you just got to flip it in your mind. But I think for a long time, I was like, why does it look exactly like it? Almost, it doesn't make any sense, right? But. Well, let's extend this out a little bit because that's an interesting point to kind of like explore. Because one of the things I think that Enterprise really did well, and this was done before, obviously before we knew anything about the the designs of the Enterprise or any of the Starfleet ships in the J.J. movies, what I think that Enterprise did expertly was walk the line of believability between what what we think a ship of that era, a ship of the 22nd century should look like, versus the the, the 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 staunchly fixed image of what these ships look like from previous series all the way back to the original series. So I couldn't even imagine what Doug was going through when he was challenged with, okay, we need you to make a ship that emulates the spirit of the original series, respects all the series that came after that, but its own it has its own identity and it's the prototype of all the ships that will come after it. I mean, that's that's amazing. I mean, that's just take all that information and try and ingest that and put something out on screen that people will be ready to accept. I, I don't know how he did it. And you're right. Well, you and I are going to have to tag team Doug and say, like, you know, we're going to have to start picking his brain about that. And there is there is a Warp 5 episode earlier on in the library that you'll be able to find Doug there. But I, I, that's that's just mind boggling to me because everyone has their series. Everyone has their ship for the longest time. It was the well. It was the refit Enterprise, the motion picture Enterprise, and the Wrath of Khan. I mean, that was just that, especially the flyby that they do in the motion picture. I know that takes a lot of heat because it's like the longest single take, you know, uh, ship pass segment in any of the movies. But it's worth it because. <laughs> to be fair, I just rewatched the motion picture recently. It's not that long. I timed it out. I was like, 
it's like two minutes. It's not even that long. Everyone's like, oh, it's 20 minute flyby. I'm like, it's two minutes. It's a good two minutes, guys. It's not. But I think everyone's just so used to like modern movie making where everything has to happen so quickly, like two minutes where they're just looking at the ship and every angle. It seems laborious. But, you know, in reality, when I was looking, I'm like, that's not that much time. But I digress. So when you take a, I, I mean, I love that that flyby. It it it, it gives you it, it establishes the relationship with that design that it's it's new but it's still familiar at the same time and i think that that's a great example of what i think doug was challenged was it has to be new and familiar at the same time and i'm glad that you both accepted that over time because when i first saw the ship when i first saw the ship i was in love with it i was like you know that's a great looking ship uh, and, and i felt like i was betraying my love for like the other ships that came before it because it's so modern looking but Alec Peters, uh, who is the executive producer of Axanar, and I, we've had conversations about this because Tobias Richter is doing all of the, of the late works, is doing all of the renders for Axanar, and he asked me, he's like, what do you think of these ships? And I think that they're a really good balance between what we have to accept of what these ships should look like in today's technologically um, extrapolated design theories, because... Audiences today have a certain expectation of, of the quality of special effects and the sleek and modernistic look of design. That's what, that's what the audience just comes to expect when they come to a property. If you're trying to sell them on the Matt Jeffries 1966-69 ship, the original Constitution class, and say like, hey, this is the ship that belongs in today's time, there's going to be a break in the audience's respect for what you're trying to achieve. And I think that the NX-01 did a great job of trying to bridge those two worlds. And something I wanted to ask you, Jeff, because we've had this offline before, this conversation. I mean, do you really think that having the NX-01 and the Defiant in the same episode in A Mirror Darkly, did that work for the audience? Or did that just show how advanced the design was for the NX was versus, you know, the, the, the respect that they were trying to show to trying to make a, uh, as much of a realistic defiant that they could in that episode? It worked for me. Um, when I saw them on screen together, I um, really believed that even though the, the Constitution class was an older design from a real-world perspective— it looked like something that would be more advanced. It was sleeker. It was, um, you know, it, it had a more streamlined look to it. Whereas the NX class, everything was just, you know, hard surfaces. It was a little clunkier. Um, things had uh, sharper edges to them. Um, it's like comparing, uh, you know, a car from the eighties to a car from today. Um, it's just, it, the the enterprise or the defiant and next to the nx class it just looked more advanced even though um, you know it was obviously a, a 50 year old design it just looked good um, it looked like something that you could see as a natural progression from that advanced in terms of its streamline mm -hmm. and design i think that's actually where um the design choices uh that they were making in axonar are really good because they're trying to bridge enterprise through the four years war and then into the original series. 
and in removing a lot of the chunkiness of the design in the NX and, and subsequent ships and turning it into more streamlined design. I can see you selling it that way um, in, just in terms of the improvement in, in, in uh, the, the overall structural integrity of the ship, uh, just the quality of materials. Um, and even though it has nothing to, you know, it, it, the sleekness and, and the atmospheric uh, silhouette of a ship has nothing to do with space because there's, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no friction in space, but it still kind of like adds to the overall quality of look. And it's, I love all the designs, but I never really had a problem with anything that happened in Enterprise. I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't really see anything, you know, sticking out like a sore thumb. So, um, I think it worked too. I think for me, the thing that really jumped out at me was, was the actual the screen. So like the screens on near the back of the bridge of the Defiant where it was lit up where originally in the original series, it was kind of just kind of like this matte painting. I think in Amira Darkly, they had it lit up more i think a they darkened the bridge a little bit so you you've noticed it was a darker bridge but also just the way they lit up those um display screens that are showing like random images of space they actually for me that was the most that was the piece that looked more technologically advanced the most technologically advanced it looked like kind of like this bridge between like a holographic screen that really doesn't have like a a monitor type interface right you had it was less cluttered it almost was like a projection on uh, on the bridge and I think for me that really popped out it was very vibrant and, and, and that was the thing that kind of sold me that this was you know a, a more advanced design but I think a lot of people were very surprised that just the design it holds up if you're looking at it from like a very retro future perspective because it's so retro it looks futuristic right because right. it's so right. retro literally the buttons are just like you know a giant you know hexagonal shape a cube right like that's an actual button the fact that it's so different than what we are right now one can make the jump that it's so different because it's so much more advanced right so i think but there's only so many ways you can kind of parse that i mean at a certain level some people will still still won't buy it but you're never going to get everyone right but i think for for the for some people it's enough and i think most star trek fans they're going to embrace that wholeheartedly because they love the original series they love the original set so i think for them they're like wow this actually does really hold up by comparison i think a lot of people are pleasantly surprised well, I mean, to wrap this all up, I'd like to actually ask another question for our, our listeners and, and for the Babel Conference um, fans out there. Let us know what you think about how you feel about the ship designs. Did it work for you? Did it not? Uh, did the ships in Enterprise kind of like, did it, did it strike uh, a chord with you? Did it resonate with you in any way? We would love to hear your feedback on that because... I mean, we we have our opinions on it, and and we've made them firmly known. But we love continuing the conversation, and there's no better place really to do it than in the Babel Conference, where you know all of the fans and all the listeners that are participating there can also kind of speak up, and and we can just have these fantastic uh, back and forths about you know what we're talking about here in this episode. So thanks, Will, and thanks, Jeff, for uh, participating, and um, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed that conversation, and I mean, we could really go on about that for hours because I think if there's one thing that we can all agree on, we love starships, and and I and I think that uh, whatever the next incarnation of Star Trek may be, whether it is Star Trek Three or the upcoming Axanar project, we can't wait to see the next evolution of starship design and. That's very exciting. So it's been a lot of fun. 
talking about the first ships of the line, the first fleet here on Warp 5. But this isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some things that you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. So I just stopped, watched it, and just cried like a child, and then did it again and kind of brought up like what I was thinking while I was tweeting it. But that first time through, uh, it was such an, an emotional impact. I, I was wrecked. Earl Grey. You know, what the dressing up and what the, the clubs and the meetings and the podcast, you know, all really comes down to is just finding and talking and being around other people who enjoy something that you really enjoy. The Orb. This year, opening for five-year mission is... Del Rock. Del Rock. Del Rock. They'll rock your world. Bajoran style. <laughs> rock your world. Bajoran <laughs> style. I hope everybody's got their earring on tonight. <laughs> the Ready Room. I do like that he just drops out of the sky naked. That is the perfect way to introduce Q. And then I love, just before we cut to the credits, they get this great shot of him looking up at Picard, and he's like, hey, what up? (laughs) A little flirty. I love it. (laughs) To the journey! My question is, what would Janeway have in place of banana pancakes? Because that's Bolana's thing. Would Janeway's be coffee ice cream? I was just about to say coffee ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) my, My lips... My lips were forming the syllables to say coffee ice cream. <laughs> Warp 5. I was struck by watching Broken Bow, the fact that it was front and center in the very first episode. Because I remember going back, I remember watching Broken Bow when Enterprise first debuted when I was in high school. And I remember revisiting it now in full um, when I first watched Enterprise in my f- comprehensive rewatch. And I had forgotten the fact that Future Guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go with Silic and the Sulaban, which we'll talk about later in the show. Commentary, Trek stars. I know that both of us will come out of it okay, but <laughs> since Matthew is not used to sparring with either of us, I'm afraid that he's going to be a bloody mess lying on the floor of the 602 Club. The 602 Club. And this whole time, it's really, I feel like it's these people, they're playing God with fossilized mosquitoes. As if, you know, they have the right to do this, like they have the knowledge to do this, um, you know, that they can control any kind of species that they have absolutely no knowledge of. Literary Treks. Yeah, this happened to her at 22 when she was on Ryan's Hope and it was at its peak. It was a very popular soap opera at the time. And truth be told, I've not seen tons of Ryan's Hope. Soap operas just aren't my thing. But there were some very... There, it had a big following. And it was not your yeah, typical did. run-of-the-mill soap opera either. I mean, Claire Levine, the writer of the show, was doing some very different things. Axonar, the official podcast. There is more to life than just get up, go to work, come home, watch TV, go to bed, repeat until dead. There's more to life than that. And I I believe that uh, that's the essential magic of Star Trek is that it says it it appeals to that, that urge to get up off the couch, walk out the front door and go see what's out there. And introducing the newest addition to the network, Women at Warp. 
Iman is fabulous, and I quite like Martia. Yeah, me too. She's a fun character. Yep. Also, you think Kirk would be happier about kissing himself. <laughs> right? It was his lifelong ambition. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I f- more feel like it's his lifelong ambition to kiss Spock, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So please check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Now, if you're an Apple user, please hit the subscribe button. That helps us out in Trek FM as it makes it easier for other listeners to find the show or all of the different types of network shows we have here on Trek FM as they search iTunes. And if you like what you have heard here on Warp 5 or on any of the Trek FM network shows, please, please leave us a rating. And we love five-star ratings, and we do our very best here on the shows to try and deserve those five-star ratings. So if you think that we are up there in the quality, please make your vote and help us increase our visibility with those ratings for new listeners. Now, if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, on TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Now, one of the ending topics that I love talking about every single show is about Patreon.com. Now, we are an independent network, and all of the material that you hear coming each week from all of your hosts and all the different shows are done and funded through us. And a way that you can help us continue to bring all of this great content to you is to visit patreon.com and become a patron of Trek FM. Now, if you visit patreon.com slash Trek FM, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Trek FM, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. Now, some of these perks at different contribution levels include early access to content. So it is possible at a certain contribution level for us to produce these shows for you and get these shows for you early before they're even produced and published on different networks like I've just mentioned before. We also have access to exclusive content, content that no one else will actually ever hear. Producer credits, seats on our content development team, the ability to talk to Will because Will's our content manager and talk to him about future possible episodes of different shows, not just Warp 5 and seats on the development team there as well. So we really appreciate your support and any financial uh, uh, benefits that you can give us there on uh, Patreon. You don't have to do it all at once, and it's not like Kickstarter. It's not a giant lump sum. You can adjust your donations as you need, and if you feel strongly about networks like this, and if you feel uh, compelled to support us in any way possible, please take a look at all the offerings and all the different levels because there's something that's, that's affordable for you. I started in Trek FM as a patron, and I believe Will and Jeff are, and it's just something that was meaningful for us. We want to make sure that all this content can be provided and continues to come to you on a weekly basis. So please, again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm, and we thank you for your support. And always, always, I love thanking Floyd Dorsey. He's our associate producer and a patron through patreon.com, and... He has just been uh, an incredible resource for us. He's on the Babel Conference. That's our Facebook-only listeners page. He loves being able to discuss topics with us, and some of those topics have actually made it on the show because, 
again, that's just one of those great benefits from Patreon.com and at the different contribution levels to be able to help steer the ship, in, uh, if you will. Now, if you'd like to get in contact with us, there are many different ways. You can go to trek.fm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm and leave us a voice message or a subspace signal as you prefer. You can also contact us through Twitter at trek.fm, Facebook, facebook.com slash trek.fm, and as I mentioned earlier, you can join us on the Babel Conference, type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website and click discussion on the menu bar, and that website again is Trek FM. Now, another way that you can get involved in helping promote the network is to support our sponsor for the show, and that sponsor is audible.com. Now, Audible is just a great service that allows you the ability to be able to catch up on all those books that you just never have time for. It's a great way to populate that empty dead space in your commute and catch up on Dune, as I'm doing right now, or one of your favorite books that you just, you know what, I just can't make that kind of time in my busy, busy day. So Audible is a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. So just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Warp 5 and the network. And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space, a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an 8-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise Orbiter... <laughs> Now, there's another designation, NSS Enterprise, so it just doesn't stop. The NSS Enterprise Orbiter will carry more than 100 student-designed science experiments into space, and you can help make that happen. Visit enterpriseinspace.org to find out more and how to get your seat on the mission. Now, Jeff, how can our fans get in touch with you across the interwebs and subspace? Well, I'm on Facebook. I post in uh, the Babel Conference and on the Axonar fan group all the time. Um, I'm on there commenting and uh, posting pretty uh, just about daily. Um, I'm also, uh, uh, like you mentioned earlier, I uh, have uh, the website trekopedia.com. I'm trying to compile all the information from all the uh, different uh, TV shows, movies, cartoons, books, comics, everything even the games and all of it and just compile it all together and make it work. Uh, which when you factor in the, the old Fosser role-playing games from the eighties, that's pretty difficult. Um, so you're saying it's a combination of memory alpha memory beta. Isn't it like a memory gamma too? So you're like the, you're the grand unified theory of star Trek. Right, um, Jeff? pretty much. Yeah. It'd be also memory yeah. Harlan. So. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> it's bringing it all together and finding ways to make it work together, um, and it's uh, it, it's an it's an interesting challenge, and I really enjoy putting it together. Um, I'm also on Twitter at uh, Harlander, um, and I've got my uh, my comic book uh, The Protectorate up at uh, bandwidthcomics.com. It's also on Facebook at uh, just search for Bandwidth Comics. Awesome, Jeff. Thanks for joining us tonight, and uh, of course. Will Nguyen, Will, and uh, he is our content manager, so if you would like to discuss content with him, Will, how can they get in touch with you? So you can find me on Twitter, of course, at, at Will underscore Nguyen, it's spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. Just drop me a tweet, I'm always on there. 
And of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference, which is, as you mentioned before, is our Facebook listeners group. I'm also in the Axnar fan group, Axnar donors group, and uh, Star Trek, which is the official Axnar-sponsored Star Trek group, where there's always just great overall Star Trek discussion. And just find me on Facebook in general or, or other social media. And I'm also associate producer for The Orb, Literary Treks, and Earl Grey. And, you know, I just want to you know, hear from all the fans and listeners out there to what your feedback is. So I want to hear from you. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, man. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel conference. As the gentlemen have mentioned before, you can also find me on Twitter. That's Norman Lau, N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And I'm also a huge supporter of Alec Peters and the Axonar project. And you can find me on the dedicated Axonar fan group page on Facebook. And finally, I'm a proud supporter of Trek FM through Patreon. And I'm an executive producer here for the network. So thanks everyone for listening and join us again next time here in the conference room for another episode of Warp 5. <laughs>